Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, and thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. PVM FM. We appreciate it. Today I'm re-airing a show I recorded a few years ago during the springtime in Asheville, Riverside Park, Riverside Cemetery. I was in my car and I was using my car as a recording studio. I was with Danny Solis. Danny is a poet, a performer, and an all-around wonderful friend and Danny and I gathered in the car to have this conversation and the reason I'm re-airing it is because sadly last Thursday the eve of Good Friday Danny died in his sleep to the surprise of everybody in the poetry community myself included he left too soon so many people said and Danny also left a legacy with him and he was amazing person. He showed up for the poetry. He showed up for himself. He showed up for his community. He was an activist. He was an all-around engaged artist on, on every level, and he demanded as much of his friends as he, as he demanded of himself. So today, in memory of Danny, I'm re-airing this show that I recorded a long time ago, and in this show you will hear the two of us talk about the origins of the Poetry Slam, the origins of some of the spoken word movement in the 90s, and how we played our small parts in making that happen. So many people were involved in the community. Danny, he was a big, big force, and when Danny left this world last week, if you Google Danny Solis, S-O-L-I-S, poet, you will see endless, endless mentions of Danny and how much he did for the community. So on that note, I would like to give you the interview that we did. So here's Danny. I opened by asking him to tell me about how he landed in Asheville. So here you go, Danny Solis. Well, I'm glad that you, you didn't say recite a poem. I thought you were going to say right away, go ahead and recite a poem. Anyway, no, we'll do that later. No pressure, right? No pressure. You know, I have so many memories of Asheville, and uh, the, my first connection to Asheville was coming here from Boston to audition for Poetry Alive. Sally Hayes was the artistic director of Poetry Alive at that time, and I really wanted that job, and I was so excited about it, and I and, uh, came here. With Buddy Ray McNeese, we we drove down together from Boston because Buddy was living in that that area at the time. It was great. I, I loved Sally and and uh, had a good audition and got the job. And so began coming here. As you know, people who worked for Poetry Alive had to come through the main offices here. Worked for Poetry Alive for two years and had a great time with them. That was about in '92 or sometime early '92. I worked for Poetry Alive for about three years or so, maybe longer, a little bit longer and eventually moved to Asheville with a girlfriend that I had met while on the road with Poetry Alive. We met in Austin, Texas. We're pretty much smitten with each other, and I moved from Boston to Asheville, and she moved from Austin to Asheville. We kind of met in the middle. We were borrowing a tiny apartment from a gentleman who worked for Poetry Alive. It was an efficiency apartment 
and he was never there and and he just said make yourself at home and we did and I remember a lot of rain a lot of rain and we had two movies that we watched sort of over and over one was The Bad Lieutenant with Harvey Keitel and the other one was Prospero's Books which is the movie well, I want to say by directed by Coppola uh, taken from Shakespeare's The Tempest and, and The Bad Lieutenant was incredibly an incredibly ugly movie wonderfully made but, but showing the seamy bitter tragic side of life and Prospero's books was this incredible cinematic painting just this unbelievably beautiful you know scene after scene of more and more beauty little did I know that those two movies would in some ways be the perfect metaphor for a lot of the time that I spent in Asheville one of the most incredible things that happened to me here was meeting Pat Storm who uh, was a poet and a bouncer and a stuntman, a stepdad, was an escort for battered women when they were going back to their apartments to get their things. And that was the job he said he loved the most. And Pat and I were on two poetry slams, slam teams together. Just one of the best buddies I've ever had. And, and Pat is dead now, for full disclosure. Died many years ago. But, uh, I'll never forget him. And, and whenever I think of Asheville, I think of Pat Storm. Yeah, that's, that's kind of first salvo. Of Asheville memories. So for those of you out there wondering about Poetry Alive, that was a business that Bob Falls and I co-founded in the mid-80s. We memorized poems from the school textbook and performed them as theater for school students. And we hired people over the years. Danny was one of the ones who came. And one of the reasons that we hired Danny, or Sally Hayes hired Danny, really I didn't do it, was because Danny could hold his own on the stage under any circumstance. And that was one of the key requirements, not so much... That was the first requirement. The rest needed to have the talent to back it up, but the holding your own and thinking on your feet was one of the big things. And Danny, I've always admired that about you. And with that in mind, I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about those early days in the slam here in Asheville. And the reason I ask that is because other people have been on the show. Ray McNeese was on the show. And I ask everybody who has been in Asheville to fill the people in on that history a little bit from their point of view. Or if you could fill the people in on that history from your point of view, I would appreciate it. First of all, let me say Alan Wolf. Alan Wolf. Alan Wolf. Alan was a key to so many aspects of everything that went on. And let me also say Ginger West. Ginger West. Ginger West. The two of them are a married couple and, and lovely, lovely human beings and were so good and kind to me and gave me so many opportunities. I think Alan has a vision that's very, very rare in the world of poetry because not only does he love what people call spoken word, I, I prefer the onus of poetry. I prefer being called a poet. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Alan loves the new stuff. He loves what the kids are doing and old people who are doing spoken word. But he also loves the classics and is very, very steeped in in the canon and many aspects of the canon and not just what most people would consider old dead white guys. But he also loves old dead white women and old dead black men and women and Dino poets and Roman poets. He reminds me of you, Nave, in some ways, in that he really reveres foundation from which Western thought comes in Western literature He's, Alan's also a musician. I mean, he's a drummer and a singer. 
fiddles with different instruments and he's got the musical element thrown in there uh, like a lot of us do like buddy ray mcneese does and and i also am a percussionist so i think that's that's a really really natural bridge or combination of elements to have in one's repertoire in one's life you know as part of, of how you live the early days there was the green door with bonnie and david was a wonderful place a wonderful place to hone your craft the very first Southern Fried Poetry Festival and Slam. It was in 1995. Even before that, people started hearing about the Asheville scene and showing up. People would come from different places in the southeast to come read at the Green Door, and, which was amazing if you consider at the time that Asheville had a population of 65,000. Asheville was a kind of a place even then that oozed poetry. You could feel it. It was a wonderful place to be, both in terms of of being able to create the raw materials, composing first drafts, and then you could walk into almost any cafe and and there would be people that would look at a rough draft and, and discuss it with you. Or you could go to an open mic or go to a slam and read it and get feedback. It was just an amazing scene. And I was coming from a, a huge scene, living in Cambridge and Boston. At one point, I decided I was going to go try to read a poem every night and see how many nights I could go. And my goal was to go for a week. And I think I went for nine days. I went nine nights in a row, different venues where they had open mics and slams. And after the ninth night, uh, I was just exhausted. So I, I gave it a break. But that was the scene in Boston. Coming from that scene uh, and moving to Asheville, which was so much smaller in terms of population and venues, but in my mind, just as big in terms of what it offered what it offered one as a working artist in, in that process. I don't think anyone really thought, maybe Alan thought, maybe you thought for a second, for, for a hot minute, that we were establishing the foundation for something that would grow into something else. But but I know I, I never thought of that, and I, I'm pretty sure Pat never did. People like Ted Vaca, who, who helped a lot grow the scene here in Asheville. Kim Holzer, who's now Kim Holzer Lane, who I love, who would come in from Winston-Salem. Uh, she would drive the, what was it, hour and 40 minutes or something? I think it's more like two hours, a little bit, three hours maybe. Wow, okay, so so long ways. But she would come in and, and she won her spot on the, on the 1995 team that I was on. You know, I think that team helped establish the scene a lot and kind of give it a national reputation, at least on the slam circuit. And then shortly after that, the Asheville Poetry Festival started. And that was huge. Also, Alan and Ginger and also Lee Lancaster organized the 1994 Poetry Slam Nationals, which happened here in Asheville. I think the combination of having the Nationals here in 1994 and then the Asheville team actually winning the whole kit and caboodle in 95 put Asheville on the radar of a lot of poets all over the country, both in terms of the slam and academia. Um, and I, I really, just to address that for a second, I think the idea of all those divisions between those particular endeavors are mostly imaginary because we're all trying to go for the same thing. But anyway, I, th I think that was kind of kind of uh, integral to the foundation and growth of, of poetry here in Asheville. And now look what's happening. The wonderful Asheville Word Fest. Thank you, Laura Hopegill. Fast forward to now. It's amazing. And, and there's a lot of Asheville I don't recognize. But I recognize this place we're at here, and I recognize springtime in Asheville. Uh, it's just grown so much exponentially, but there are some little, pretty much unchanged sort of alcoves 
of Asheville that, that sync up, that match the memories that I've got. But there's a lot that's different. When you talked about Asheville winning the National Poetry Slam Championships, fill people in a little bit on the significance of that. For me, personally, it was really significant in that it showed that a team that came from a smaller talent pool could work really hard and win the Nationals. And I I will say it, you know, maybe we weren't as phenomenally talented as some of the other teams that were at the Nationals in Ann Arbor that year in 1995. But I like to think, and I'm pretty darn sure, that we outworked everybody. We spent a whole summer dedicated to preparing ourselves. And, it, you know, people wonder what that means. A very small portion of it was strategy, which strategy and slam to me is more like aesthetics. It's not like strategy going into a battle. It's more like where are you going to hang this painting in the room so that it has the best light and the best space around it? How will it breathe? How do you place a poem in the midst of a bunch of other poems? What is the room like? etc. That's a matter of aesthetics, but that is this very, very small part of preparation. The big part of preparation is dedicating yourself to the poems that you've written and learning how to perform them in a way that, first of all, serves the poem, the gift of the poem that, that the poet is given by the muse and by their own hard work and diligence. And then how do you serve the audience with your performance? How do you give the best, most connective, most meaningful performance of this poem to the audience, which is relying on you to be not just a good, but a great artist? That's what everyone wants. No one goes to a reading or a concert or a play thinking, well, gee, I I hope this is okay. I hope this is just good. Everybody wants to be wowed. Everybody wants to be stunned and amazed. And I feel that that's the responsibility. And that's what the 95 team worked on all summer long, out on the stoop in different places where we rehearsed. Ted Vaca, Pat Storm, Kim Holzer, and our coach, Lee Lancaster. We worked our butts off. We were the underdogs. People at the Nationals didn't really give us a chance uh, to win. That was okay with us. We felt confident. Lee may be the best coach I've ever worked with, at least one of the top two, Mike Henry being the other one. A wonderful team and and so so dedicated and so beautiful and and so full of of heart and and fight and we were we weren't going to give up i mean we weren't we weren't going to hand it to anybody if if anybody wanted it they were going to have to come take it from us and they didn't we won it's a classic underdog story i still think it should be made into a movie nave i think it'd make a great movie well on on that note i would like for you to tell the audience what it feels like to stand on a stage on Saturday night at the National Poetry Slam Championships. What size was the audience? What did the room feel like? And how did it feel when you realized you were winning? I, I mean, it's it's hard to describe. To be fair, I had been on a team in 1992 in Boston at the Nationals that won the National Championship. And that, that also was a great team. Buddy Ray McNeese, Benson Wheeler, Richard Cambridge. We really, really didn't have a coach. Um, we tried to, to make Patricia Smith coach us. She sort of wanted to, but she was busy with her own thing. She was the national champion. She was getting ready to defend her title. I can totally understand that. You know, I'd had a taste of that before. Because we, we went through and we won. And we, I tell you, we were we were kind of stunned back then. I mean, we knew we could win, but we didn't 
it wasn't a, a done deal in any of our minds. So I'd had a taste of that. I was lucky enough to, to be with the Asheville team, as, as we've been talking about, that won in 95. And the next year I was on the Austin team that went to the finals in 96. And we didn't win. We placed fourth, which was great. To get up there and be doing your thing, and Lee is keeping score. Everyone scores. She knows every single thing that's happening in that bout. Man, she's hitting the switches and pushing buttons and doing calculations and calling the shots, running count of what the scores are and where we're at. And to realize after two rotations, and for those listening, what a rotation is, there are four teams in the finals. And in a rotation, a poet goes from each of the four teams. So you got four poets, and, and that's one rotation. And to realize after two rotations, we were neck and neck with Cleveland, who had an incredible team that year. Incredible team. To realize we were neck and neck with them and we had a chance to win was an unbelievable feeling. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. How big was the audience? In the Michigan theater, I want to say it was right around 2,000 people. I, I, I want to say like... 1,500, 1,750, 2,000 people. It was packed. There was not an empty seat in the house. One of the things about the team was that we had worked so hard and we knew what we were doing. We were so comfortable with the material and, and our ability to, to deliver it in a meaningful way to the audience that we were looking around for things to use to give us a tiny bit more advantage. Uh, we were the only team that used lavaliers, cordless mics, because for our group poem, there was some kind of complicated choreography. We didn't stay in one place for one of our group poems. We moved around. We switched places on the stage, walked around a little bit, and we realized it would be a lot easier if we had a couple of cordless mics to keep all those cords from tangling. The tech people at the Michigan Theater offered that opportunity to the other teams, and they all refused, but we said, yes, we'll, we'll take them. The other thing that we did is when Kim Holzer did her solo poem, which was a Generation X poem, Pat Storm and I... It was Kim's idea. We we got backstage, and the curtains that formed the backdrop had a separation in the middle. Kim got about six feet behind that curtain. We told the MC, don't look for her. Don't look to the side of the stage. Announce her and walk off the stage, which he did. And Kim starts coming like a freight train. And Pat and I are each holding the edge of a curtain. And about a foot before she hits that curtain... We pull the curtains aside. So here comes this six-foot-tall, long, red, flowing-maned woman at a, at a super-fast, like an Olympic speed walk towards the microphone from the back of the stage. And people are waiting her to come from, for her to come from either side, like every other poet's been doing all evening. No. Out of nowhere, bam, like as if by magic or miracle, here she comes barreling towards the mic, hits the mic, starts talking immediately, and when she's done with her poem, which she nails. She completely nails. She spins on her heel, starts walking back towards the curtain. Now get this, Pat and I can't see her. Lee is positioned in the wings, Lee Lancaster, our coach. She gives us a signal. She can see Kim and she can see Pat and I. When Kim's about three feet away from the curtain, she gives Pat and I the signal and both of us, again, part the curtains. No one can see us. They can't see our hands or anything. Parts the curtains, she walks through, we let the curtains go, she disappears. The crowd goes nuts. I think that's one of the things that put us over the top, using a little bit of extra theatrics. And had we not done all the work before that, we would have been unable to utilize that particular opportunity. 
the lavaliers, the curtain, doing stuff. One of my phrases that I use when I coach slam teams, as I say, you got to be able to turn on a dime in the middle of a bout. You can't stay static with your plans and your, your scripting and your strategy. You have to be able to just switch things up seconds before you're going on stage at times. And if you can't do that, it might make the difference between winning and losing. After saying all that, Nave, I really want to say the point is not the points. The point is poetry. And I think if we hadn't been focused on putting on such a great show, we wouldn't have gotten the points. And I know we wouldn't have been able to perform our poetry the way we did and give it to the audience in as meaningful a way. And by the way, the point is not the points. The point is poetry. Thank you, Alan Wolf. If you ever hear this, it's a phrase Alan Wolf coined. And I, I think I was there in the audience at the Green Door the first time he ever said it. But yeah, it was an unbelievable feeling. And actually, we knew at the end of the third rotation um, that the team closest to us in scores was Cleveland. Well, after we went up in the in the last rotation and we got something like a 29-1, we knew that Cleveland needed a 30-plus. It needed like a 31 to beat us. Quickly review how that scoring works so the listening audience will understand what you're talking about. Very good, very good. As soon as I say the point isn't the points, then I start talking about the points. I realize the irony in that. Uh, <laughs> in this poetry slams at the Nationals, there are five judges. They score the performances, the poems, the writing, everything in this melange on a scale of 0 to 10 using decimals to avoid ties. They drop the high score and the low score and take the three scores that are in the middle. They don't get an average. They add them up, just raw adding. So a perfect score is a 30. Some people have gotten that in the finals. I know that Dallas did in 1998 in Austin with their superhero poem, Love You, Dallas. For me, I always felt like a 26 or better was a really good score. The scoring is a, is kind of like a endeavor of its own, in a way, like keeping track of that. There are scoring wonks in the Poetry Slam who know all these nuances and all this stuff. I'm much more about the writing and the performing. Of course, I know the scores. I've, I know how it works, but that's that's basically it. Theoretically, it's five points for performance, five points for poetic content, in other words, the writing, and not everybody parses it out that strictly. A lot of people just do it as kind of a melange. So it becomes even more like, how does the poem affect me emotionally, intellectually? How does it stimulate me? If it's bleh, maybe they'll give it a five or a 6.1. If they love it, and then you get into the nines and the 9.1s and, the, of course, the tens, a 10, a 10, a 10. So that's, you know, that's fun and exciting. So, yeah, that's, that's basically it for the scores. So now that we have a little bit of a better idea of how the scoring works, you were saying... In the fourth rotation, we went up first, and we did our group poem. Uh, one of them. We had, I think, four group poems that year, and, and Ted and I started about by doing a duet. And I'll tell you, inside story, I screwed up my part of the duet, and Ted picked up my line and did it, which put us back on track. And he didn't even blink. He didn't hesitate, not even a second. And he saved the poem. He saved the piece. Because I had blanked. And he knew it. He could. He just felt it. He didn't even have to look at me. And he said my line. And then I jumped back in and we finished it. And as we walked off stage, <laughs> I started trying to apologize. And he just held up a hand like, I can't even deal with you. He was such just kind of a talk to the hand gesture and moment. And I realized, just leave him alone. Because we needed to go on and do the rest of the bout. 
After three rotations, Asheville went up first. We did a group poem called Every Day. The inspiration, I'll tell you honestly, I, I prayed for the inspiration on how to script that poem. And I was rewarded with inspiration. The muse came and sat me down and said, Honey, this is what you do. And I'm very proud of that scripting and that poem and the way that that group did it to this very day. So we went up and we did that poem, all four of us. And I have to say, we brought the house down. And I think we got a 29-1 or a 29-2. And like I said, Cleveland was the team that was closest to us in scores at that time. And at that point, Cleveland needed better than a 30, which is impossible to get. They needed like a 30.8 or a 31 or something ridiculous in order to beat us. And Lee knew right away, our coach, Lee Lancaster, knew right away we had won. And she was waiting backstage and Pat and Ted had gone off in one direction and Kim and I walked off together towards Lee and Lee was holding the clipboard in her hand and beaming like an idiot and literally jumping up and down and threw her arms around us and just started whispering because we're backstage still whispering we've won we've won we've won and I was like are you sure let me look at those scores she stopped and she showed me and I just started getting chills. I mean, here's the whole whole summer. Here's years of work. Here's years of dedication. Here are our dreams right now coming true. And I really revere the dreams of, of other poets and, and slammers all over the country and all over the world. A lot of people dream about just making it onto a team in really competitive cities and situations and scenes. Just being on a team, winning a spot on a team to go to the Nationals is a fulfillment of a dream for a lot of people. I know it was for me. When I got on my first team in 1992 in Boston, I was living the dream, baby. I, I mean, I wanted to win the Nationals, but if we didn't, I was fine with that. Just being on a team was unbelievable. And then 95 was my third team. I was on a team in 92, skipped the Nationals in 93, was on the Asheville team in 1994, as you know, Nave, that great team. Full disclosure, audience, Jim Nave was on that team, one of the mainstays, did an incredible job. Also, Dan Rourke and Ted Vaca and uh, Pat Storm coached us once in a while um, in between blunts and 40 ounces. But that was a wonderful team, and I had a great time with that team. And then 95 was on the Asheville team, again, one second national championship. For me, we were living large and once Lee backstage showed me those scores and I saw them and I knew it was true and I knew it was true that we had won yeah it was it was an unbelievable feeling and uh, we decided to keep it from from Ted and Pat and they had both gone outside to smoke so we were we were like then y'all can y'all can wait until we <laughs> you know until later to find out for real it was really incredible and I, and I know a lot of people were stunned uh, not least among them the mighty Boston team uh, that year. Later spoke to Patricia Smith and to Michael Brown, and they told me that their worry in the finals really was when would Danny Solis go solo? Well, my strategy was not for me to go solo because I knew that they were waiting to put Patricia up against me. I'll be honest, Patricia can beat me. And so I knew before we even got to the Nationals, I said, it's a, it's a losing strategy to put me up solo against Patricia. I mean, how do you beat the queen in chess? You don't beat her by going one-on-one, -on -one, by sending a rook or a bishop. You surround her. And so that was my strategy, was to counter with a group poem. 
you know, because Patricia is unbelievable and I love her and she is my mentor and teacher. I sit at her feet gladly forever. In terms of the slam, I mean, I come from Boston, rough and tumble, and her roots are in Chicago, rough and tumble, poetry slam, the little guy, you know, pull the next one up, Mark Smith and all that stuff, the city of big shoulders. And so in order to do honor to all of that, you know, I went in wanting to win and I knew that, that me one-on-one, I lose. Patricia and I one-on-one, I lose, which on some level is okay. There, you know, of all the people to lose to, I felt like all four of us together would be stronger in that particular situation. And in some ways, that's how I look at community in general. In some ways, group homes are microcosmic of the community. We're stronger together than we are separately. So on that note, I'd like to pause for a moment and say you are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth having. I'm your host, James Nave. We're speaking with the poet Danny Solis, who's been a friend of mine for a long, long time, and it's a real pleasure to have Danny here. And we're broadcasting on WPVM-FM 103.7 from downtown Asheville, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. And now we will return to this wonderful story about the history of poetry and the Poetry Slam, and I believe we may be even moving on to other things. Speaking of Danny Solis solo, any chance we could open up the second half of the show with a, a piece of yours, a poem that you would like to give us? Sure, I would. I would love to do that. Uh, let me ask you: any any requests? I'm uh, going, going to leave that up to you. Okay. Well, now I, you know, I've been thinking about what to do, and I think I want to do this one because. This one I wrote in Asheville. I actually wrote a lot of it at Barley's Brew Pub, sitting there drinking beers, which I'm so glad is still there. You know, this poem is connected to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. I don't want the introduction to be too long, but it is about a breakup that happened to me in Asheville. I'll talk more about it maybe afterwards, if that's okay. I'm just going to do the poem. I'm going to yell a little bit, so I might, might lean back, and then I'm going to lean in and back and forth, so... Yeah, crazy, crazy coyote, coyote. I know you, brother, sister. You the one side of the road, pants falling down around your ankles, yapping out jokes about madness and heartbreak and soul. Clever coyote with his foot in a trap. That was us. Bad stretch of highway, three-legged, running, running, running always, but never quite fast enough to catch up to what? That broken time. What jagged breath, what jumbled dream, what cracked and spinning Venus pulling us by our hot cheekbones, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dusk doing more than flirting, sputtering flame, but we know what. Only that to reach inside that tangle will bloody us again. Another shot, another bottle, another blunt won't be enough. More gets broken, more gets scattered, and we want more. We want, 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 I want. The hungry fire inside pushes us out into the starry arms of dusk's alabaster sister, white glow moon tattoo, reminding us of all those other times when all we had was the struggle to hang on. Dreams running dry, creek bed, bone puzzle, rattle the pieces, hands full of tiny cuts on top of scars, trembling with nicotine, caffeine, booze, blood pumping, or lack of stars. Poets love stars. 
and all those long, wide-eyed, fever-thicket, nocturne-purple spools of clouds, no stars to spill and sizzle on your lips, no moon to lacerate and remind you she clouds up, holds you at arm's length, and there is no easy medicine, no tough solution, no drink of water phone call in the middle of the night to ease this one up. Her letters sewn under your skin like broken glass. Your letters, burning crown of thorns around your lonely head, you are nailed to this night of no dreams, no visions, no crack open the egg of miracles. You can't escape. It holds you tight. Crazy! Crazy. Crazy coyote, coyote. With her foot slipping gently out of a trap, one more breath, one more moment, one more chance. At what? Redemption? Salvation? That. One more chance. That was us. Sisters. Brothers. That was us. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate that. I've always enjoyed that poem. So I would have requested it as one of the ones I I love. Let me move now for a moment to your childhood. I'd love for you to talk about where you are from, how you came to be who you are, and what made you. Wow, okay. You know, I actually I love talking about my childhood, and it's kind of a guilty pleasure in some ways because I've had so many friends, uh, wonderful people that I know who had really difficult childhoods. My childhood was was incredible. I mean, my family was not perfect by any means, you know. Um, there were a lot of flaws, but... There was always a lot of love in my family. We had our share of fighting and disagreements and bitter recriminations and whatever. The sort of constant backdrop or backbeat of all of that was a lot of love and a lot of dedication to family on so many levels. I mean, my father's family, you know, my cousins and my grandparents, we were all close. My grandparents lived around the corner from us in Dallas. I mean, literally less than a block away. And so when I was really little, I just had to cross one street, but I would go over there. My parents would let my grandparents know I was coming, and, you know, they'd watch out for me. And So I'd go over there and spend time. So family was just something that was a normal part of everything. And then my mother's family, huge extended family, we are celebrating the 49th Tober family reunion this year at Lake Murray in Oklahoma, which is just across the northern border of Texas. And my son's been to every one. He's nine now, my son, Tegan Miguel. He's been to every one of those. But when I was a little boy, our house was filled with books. It was filled with books. My mom had a big silver tone stereo in the hallway, and she would play her records, you know, some some jazz, but mostly mariachi music, traditional Mexican music, would boom out on these wonderful silver tone speakers that were built into this giant old console that had doors on the side and you open and the turntable pulls out and there's the radio dial you know we didn't listen to the radio that much the the records that my mom played people like uh, Jose Alfredo Jimenez and Alicia Suarez and Tony Aguilar and Javier Solis who we share a last name with you know great Mexican singers from the musical canon but the books were everywhere and my two older sisters Mary and Linda before I could lift my head up they were reading books to me To them, in some ways, I was like a living toy. Like, here's this actual living baby doll that we can play with and read to. And I think my mom was was happy to, you know, have other people watch me. You know, my older brother, Michael, who's dead now, God rest his soul, 
He was, you know, our household version of an intellectual, always thinking about unusual things and sharing those thoughts, always reading in a house filled with books. I mean, what did you do? You picked up books and started reading them, looking through them before I could even read. You know, I learned to read early because my sisters liked to play school with me. I was reading by the time I was four and writing by the time I was five and, you know, early influence, hop on pop. So sorry that Theodore Geisel turned out to be a fascist after all. <laughs> Doesn't do anything to negate the memories and the, the experience that I had, you know, reading those books and then, you know, moving on to be a big lover of science fiction and fantasy. And we didn't have a lot of money. We were solidly like middle, middle class. My dad was a union man. He was a machinist. He made precision parts for airplanes and jet aircraft at a place called Southwest Aeromotive that would later become Cooper Aeromotive and was a union guy and all that stuff. And at one point, he had enough work and made enough money that my mom could stay home and just, just raise us. But in the early days of the family, before I was born, my mom worked part-time. And my dad worked. They saved their pennies and bought their house and, and did all the things you were supposed to do. So, And we went to Mexico every summer. You know, growing up in Dallas, Texas, we would all get in the, the station wagon or the van and drive down to Mexico and stay there for two weeks, three weeks, you know, however much vacation my dad could get and they wanted to use, my parents wanted to use to, to have us travel around. Growing up, calling myself Chicano rather than Mexican-American because in those days hyphenated was an insult. And growing up in an activist household, I think at one point there was a picture of, of Jesus in the hallway between the dining room and the kitchen right next to a, a poster of Emiliano Zapata, the great Mexican revolutionary. Growing up in that kind of a household and growing up Catholic, you know, and with a lot of books and all kinds of influences, uh, I think it really helped me be comfortable and confident in who I am. I can appreciate that in others. And when we would go to Mexico, our parents would take us to the, the pyramids at Teotihuacan outside of Mexico City. And they would take us to the Palace of Fine Arts, you know, Palacio de Bellas Artes in Mexico City. They would show us the pyramids and they would show us the, the murals of Diego Rivera and Orozco and Rufino Tamayo because they knew what we were up against, the same things they were up against, you know, in society. And they would say, if anybody ever tries to make you ashamed for being a Mexican, just remember this. And they would point to a mural that was huge, bigger than life and mind-blowing. Or they would point to the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon at Teotihuacan. And so having those kinds of roots... I've always been incredibly proud to be who I am and what I am, and it's really important to me to bring that into my work. In some ways, every poem I write is a Mexican poem, is a Chicano poem. And I, I don't have to say the words Chicano or mention the Mexican flag, La Bandera Mexicana, or talk about cacahuates or lotes or peanuts and corn on the cob, whatever. I just have to be me and just do what I do. And there's a poem where I talk about my Chicanismo and my roots and my family, and I performed that poem just the other day in Rochester at Mayo High School for a class. I was there doing some diversity council work, which I work with a diversity council in Rochester, Minnesota. Very proud of that work. But there were a lot of young Latinas in the, in the class. They were very respectful of my partner and I doing the presentation. But then when I started doing Chicano poem, man, their eyes lit up. It was a different thing. And so to be able to bring that to young people and bring it into the spaces where I go is a really important thing to me. Well, Danny, would you mind doing it now? I would love to hear it. I'll do it. It is times like this when I feel the old blood inside stirring, heating the new Mexican, Mexicano, Chicano. I am listening to Los Lobos 
guitarrón and acordeón spinning out generations of dignified grief. The soothing and sharpening of sorrow by tequila's wet kiss. Listening to the thrum, pop, and cry of congas, Chepito talking bells in the crack, boom, splash of timbales, Santana's guitar, wailing blue fire. And I think about cutting off these long dreads and slicking back whatever is left to look more like my folks want me to, like my Uncle Joe, the drunken barroom brawler, or like my father, the 60-hour-a-week man, the never-miss-a-beat man, the union man, the... Ladies, man, on weekends, much to the sorrow and heartbreak of my mother. And something inside shifts, churns, slow moving like the juice inside the maguey. And I think of my Uncle Jesse, a huge man, full of laughter, bow hunter, and the best dancer in the family. And I think of my mother as a young girl raising her four younger brothers, following the crops from Michigan to Southern California to Texas and back again. And I think of my grandmother, bruja, curandera, or both, casting spells and prayers by candlelight, pulling three-year-old me out of near-lethal fever that had baffled every doctor at the hospital. And I think of my grandfather, at age 14, in the coal mines of West Texas, pitting 14-year-old muscle and bone and tendon and pickaxe against bowie knife and sledgehammer-wielding bullies and winning. And a deeper thing takes hold of what I am. And being who I am, there is no part of me that is not touched, burned, stroked, clutched by the heat and the laughter, by the songs and the tears, by all the lives of wildness and self-sacrifice, by all the lives of muscle and wisdom and gamble it took to come here, right here. The old blood and songs mixing with, igniting the new, incandescent, unmistakably bladed and branded, simmered and shimmering, Mexican, Mexicano, Chicano. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Navi. You made a comment about your, fam your family being activist. I'd like for you to talk now about the role of the poet as activist in 2017. And we're doing this, I might remind people, in this wonderful cemetery, living and dying. And it's raining right now, so folks can hear some of the rain falling. So maybe the sky is celebrating with tears. I, I, it's a beautiful rain, first of all, and I'm, I'm loving it. It's so green and beautiful here in Asheville right now. Octavio Paz and Pablo Neruda had a huge argument one time over the role of the poet, you know, as, as an activist. And Neruda, basically, his contention was that that was the only role the poet has, really, is, is to try to change society for the betterment of the downtrodden. Um, and, and Paz said that the, the role of the poet is, first of all, to poetry, just to, to create good poetry and, and curate the art form and all that stuff. And, and they, they fought. They had a falling out. They didn't speak for years after that argument. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I, I wish I had been there <laughs> for that argument. I probably wouldn't have gotten a word in edgewise. I feel that one of the big things that people talk about a lot these days is self-care. So I feel that while a lot of poets do write very political things, listening to, to Francine uh, last night do her poem or do their poems about being non-binary and poems about 
rape culture and those kinds of things, that's great. And listening to them do those poems was an amazing experience. And, and we need more poems like that rather than less poems. Listening to Kara, a wonderful poet from Boone, talking about being a mixy kid, black and white, and the, the political ramifications of living in that skin in this society. We need more poems about those things rather than less. For me, I've written a lot of political poems. haven't really done one today except for the fact that the personal is the political. I feel that it's possible to be super political, explicitly political, and talk about political issues in very blunt language. Between one political opus and another, it's possible to, to write about the, the deeply personal things. And to me, I don't take anybody to task for not writing explicitly political material. It's what I do sometimes. One of the poems I've written in the past year that I really like is a poem about my son and I sitting at the, the breakfast table or at the dinner table with our windows open. We can hear the bats outside. And, and his, his hearing is great. I've got pretty good hearing. His is better than mine. And we, we start talking about the echolocation uh, sonar that bats use. And writing a poem about that, to me, is as much a political triumph as writing a poem about toppling Trump or the civil rights movement, immigration reform, or anything else, you know. I mean, after all, why are we trying to have a revolution? It is so that we can be seen as more fully human and be more fully human in our skins and live these good lives that we want to live. So revolution without tortillas and frijoles, you know, some green chile. Thank you, New Mexico. Wow, I, I lived there for a long time and it gave me a lot of gifts. You know, revolution without the deeply personal and, and very deeply lived life becomes a husk. There's so many poems to be written by so many different people. In the workshop with Kara yesterday, she kept making us write, as you know, you were there, and making us write and culling it down, making us write and culling it down, making us write and pick out one sentence and write from that, pick out one sentence. And at the end of this whole process, the line that I came up with was, let me be an empty well filled by the songs of others. Yeah, I think that's maybe the greatest skill that any poet should hone is listening to what's around you, listening to other poets, listening to the traffic, listening to the rain, listening to the bats at the dinner table. If you learn how to listen, I think you're halfway there. So someone who's sitting out there thinking, listening to us now, wondering how they could start writing poetry. I know you've given the first big note, listen. What else would you have to say to someone who would like to give it a shot? Read, read. Read, 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 read all the time. And not just poems. Read everything you get your hands on. Read the newspaper. Read comic books. Read novels, graphic novels. Read slips of paper you find at random on the street. Pick them up. Somebody's old receipt. You never know where inspiration's coming from. And, and the other thing is don't be afraid to fail. I mean, if I had said to myself, I'm not going to write unless I can write something good, you know, or I don't want to write any crappy poems, I never would have written anything. For every poem that I think is worth the light of day, I've probably written five, ten, who knows, a hundred crappy poems that no one's ever going to see. Yeah, you, you, have to, you have to be okay with failure. You have to get used to it. And, you know, talking about my slam glory days and this and that, I want, I want to be clear. When I first started slamming in Boston, I lost all the time for a whole year. 
I lost every single slam I was in. And then I started winning and doing better. But I worked really hard in between. And I didn't give up. And that's the other thing. Don't give up. You can't give up. But yeah, don't be afraid to fail. Failure is the greatest teacher. And I wish it wasn't true. But it is. I mean, you got to be unafraid to write that crappy poem. You got to be okay with failure. It becomes like an old friend. You know, and, and not just, you know, losing a slam or, or writing a crappy poem, but, you know, maybe getting rejected from from journals and magazines, maybe getting your whole manuscript rejected, maybe getting rejected brutally from something that you really want to do, not getting that fellowship or not getting tenure or not getting that grant or residency or whatever it is, you know, arriving after the cutoff for the open mic. They take 12 people. You're the 13th person. Come back next week or next month. Try again, you know. Um, keep writing. So it takes a lot of tenacity. And after the poem is written and someone would, wants to start performing it, how would you advise people who haven't performed before and would like to? What would you say to them? How do they get started? Well, I'm so glad you asked that, Navi, because the best way is to take the Danny Solis Poetry Workshop. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, do, I, do, I do teach, but... I, I think, you know, once you write a poem, read it out loud to yourself a few times. What that probably will lead to is some edits that you hadn't been able to do just reading it to yourself in your mind. Like reading it silently to yourself. Getting the poem out in the air sonically gives you a perspective that you wouldn't otherwise have. So read it to yourself a few times. That's going to be different than when you read it to your good friend. The, the dynamic changes when you add one person. Then, then take it to an open mic, you know, the whole time, reading it out loud, listening for edits, listening for different ways you can, you can deliver the poem. It's an ongoing process. I feel like I perform differently now than I did five years ago, which is different than 10, which is different than 20 years ago. I can do the same poem and it's different. And maybe those differences in some ways are very subtle, but it makes a big difference to the overall impact of the poem. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, you dedicate yourself to the process of performance in, you know, listening to different people in different endeavors and the different rhythms that they use. For instance, you know, a fire and brimstone preacher is very different from a used car salesman who is different from a game show host who is different from a lecturer in a university who is different from whoever else, I mean, think of anybody, you know, and, and there are all these different styles in delivering. I will say that there are a few things to avoid. One is poet's voice, which kind of sounds like this in every line, da-da. You know, just, just try, to, try to mix it up. There's a word that I have, uh, dynamics, which means all the different ways you can deliver loud, soft, slow, fast, with a lot of emotion, different emotions. It's building up your toolbox, your, your skill set that you bring to performance. All of that is, is part and parcel of finding your own voice, which is really the, the place you want to go to. You know, if you look at a, at a tape of yourself or listen to a tape of yourself and you sound like the other poets that you saw at Brave New Voices or at the National Poetry Slam or, you know, your local venue and you say, well, I sound like Mary and Frida and, you know, JoJo, then think about how you can be more you and less of them and that that really is finding your own voice to me is incredibly important and it's it's an ongoing process some people get there more quickly than others but it's something that i think everybody should try to do 
So, Danny, can you close out with a poem? Yes, I can. And, and uh, I think I'm going to do one that I wanted to do at my set the other night here at WordFest. And I didn't do it. And it's normally a, a poem that I that I like to open my sets with. So it's funny that now I'm going to be closing this with this poem. And I'll tell you just a little bit, a funny thing about this poem is that when I slammed, and I don't slam anymore, I've been retired for many years, but I, I teach and I create slam events, the Day of the Dead Poets Slam in Rochester, Minnesota, going into our fourth year this year, and want to do a bunch more work uh, setting the table for others. I think it's very important to be a part of the community that way. And I teach, obviously, I'm so pedantic, you know, I'll try to teach a rock, you know, how to be made of stone. But um, this poem never did well in the slam when I slammed. But my poet friends, especially the ones that I really revere, um, they've always really, always really liked it, like this poem. So uh, we'll see what you think. We'll see what you think now. I hope you like it. Audience, I hope you like it. Here we go. The day twisted inside its 24-hour skin on its afternoon-evening bones like a lost word or a fragmented memory must in its incompleteness, remind itself of its own stray dog, stone in shoe existence, happening in an odd jittery dance, hopping on a stench-dappled corner, random comment of a mad derelict making your brief walk for a coffee or a movie, another consideration of the multiple messed-up unfolding of this 50-cent city drama, concrete comedy, sack of bones and blood and breath, whuffing itself along in jagged shuffle just out of your view, the grimy hand outstretched for coin. The fingers you don't want to touch. And it's there, right there, that little song inside that says, what of that one? What storybook left out in the rain? The colors stick together, blurred and swollen in the steaming sun. It was, it was. Sing songs a bum on a balcony breaking the starched afternoon boredom with his boozed breath bellowing, brandishing his bottle like a glassy glinting banner. While the normal people in the shops, on the buses, seem less real, more remote, methodically chopping off pieces of themselves according to an agreed-upon plan. Four walls, three meals, two weeks vacation, disposable income, entertainment... And I know enough of that bargained ballad that sighs and chases its tail. And I was too slow to stop the pipe fight in the hallway. Kid with his face split open, blood splattered everywhere. And this is just one day, writhing on its rack of sky and sunlight. My bones cracking like ice cubes, popping out of their tray in this crazed arena. As I dodge the mire of bitterness, you can toss me in the lake. But you can't make me drink. And my girlfriend says... I just want to know where I'm going with my life, and she's going where this whole parade is headed. Lemmings, an apt metaphor, though they are less noisy and self-involved than all of us. And the evening shakes like a great wet bear, spraying stars into the gloaming blue, and the sun reaches a finger in an improbable curve through the clouds and over the hip of nighttime, and there in the day's departing spotlight, a dragonfly vibrating, drinking up enough heat and light to last till dawn. Wings shimmer and flick. He has eyes and guts and breath and wings and his tiny heart pounding, 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 better than the ocean in his blue-black armor. 
and if I can draw breath in the sun's next gaudy big side arrival, I will scan the air for him tomorrow. Danny Solis, it's been a real pleasure to have you with us. Nave, Nave, the pleasure's all mine. Thank you, my friend. We're shaking hands. You can't see this on the radio. Shaking hands. We'd be (laughs) hugging, but it's tight in this car. And there you go, Danny Solis. And I'm sad, sad, sad to say that Danny's no longer with us, and yet his influence continues all the time with so, so many people. And thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. I'm your host, James Nave. And... Do come back again sometime soon. Till then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>